I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Kipling once said, gardens are not made by singing Oh How Beautiful and sitting about in the shade. And I agree, it's a constant process of planning, tweaking, learning from mistakes and thinking long term. Today, we'll be taking a visit to the World Food Garden at RHS Wisley to hear about how they change the way they grow to improve efficiency and be in better balance with nature. I'll also be taking you through my favourite plant genus, Brassicas, to give you some pointers on what to do now to ensure a bountiful winter harvest. And we'll be wishing a fond farewell to Sue Biggs, the outgoing Director General of the RHS. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. With unlimited information at our fingertips, it can be challenging to know what to do when it comes to solid growing practices we can rely on. But sometimes it seems the most cutting-edge and efficient form of gardening might actually be to simply copy nature. That's what Sheila Das and her team at RHS Garden Wisley are positing. They're shaking up some of the more traditional methods of growing edibles with some fantastic experiments. My name is Sheila Das. I'm a garden manager here at RHS Garden Wisley. I look after our students and apprentices, our edibles area, our member seed scheme and our wellbeing garden, along with my very talented teams. I'm going to be talking to you today about our new edible growing methods here at RHS Garden Wisley. Edible growing has often had its feet actually in agriculture rather than horticulture for a start. So we've inherited a lot of agricultural processes such as crop rotations and the way we feed and fertilise and manage soil. Not only horticulture but agriculture is changing now. You know, we're starting to realise that we need to garden with nature. We need to understand our place in the food chain. It's not necessarily about getting the highest yield in the quickest fashion because that's not sustainable. So that's very much how we're moving along now with edible growing here at the RHS and particularly at Wisley with what we're doing here. It's really exciting because we're in a position where we can experiment. So the whole spirit of place of Wisley is experimentation, education, inspiration for our visitors and we can just try some new things. Actually, we're not trying new things, we're just trying old things. My mantra certainly is just to always strip something down and think how does it happen in nature and how can we copy that best and with as minimal intervention as possible. So trying to move away from this reliance on synthetic feeding and artificial management and monocultures and things that don't encourage good nature and biodiversity. 
So in our World Food Garden, which we created last year, we've moved away from that sort of traditional allotment style growing of everything in rows and big patches of one crop. We've mixed up crops. We worked with the designer Anne-Marie Powell and she came up with a really fantastic sort of eclectic design really that makes a space that's much more sympathetic to growing in that way. It's also beautiful, it's really creative, and we definitely want to help people to see that edible growing can be really beautiful as well as tasty. And so it's beauty and function, definitely. So the benefits of not growing things just in a monoculture in rows is that you confuse your enemy. <laughs> so your pest doesn't necessarily know where to go. And we're trying to actually move away from the notion of, of pests. Uh, we're thinking about creating a healthy environment for predators and their prey. So we actually don't want to eliminate them. So actually taking a chemical out of the cupboard and spraying something and getting rid of everything on your crop isn't a very good thing to do because you then don't have anything for your predators. So we want a healthy balance, really, and that's quite a delicate thing to get to. But the more diversity you have, the more likely you are to have some host plants for those prey items, some things that will discourage those sorts of predators, and then you'll bring in other predators as well that will eat things like aphids and other things that you don't want to eat your crops. And in fact, it is just taking it back to how nature does it. Nature is very, very clever, and nature is all about balance. She just controls everything. And everything happens in the right sort of equilibrium, if you like. So that's what we're trying to do, is create a balance. For anyone who wants to grow edibles in their own garden, my advice would be just give it a go. There's plenty of information online now. So YouTube is actually a great resource and there are some really good videos and you can see how people are doing things. So it's not like you used to just pick up a book and try and work it out and it was all full of terms that didn't make sense. But keep it simple and you don't have to spend lots of money. There are lots of solutions for making little plant pots at home from loo rolls or bits of cardboard or paper. You don't have to go out and buy lots of plastic things. You don't need lots of external things. You literally just need some seed and some ground and you can go. And just don't be too ambitious. Do what you think you can do. It should never become a chore. It should always be achievable within your own lifestyle and that's okay too. But even if it's just one tomato plant or, you know, one cabbage, if you like, that's one thing less that you've had to buy from a shop. One thing that you know you've grown at home, it's had no chemicals, no funny treatment, no air miles, no nothing, and, and you've grown it. And that always makes it taste better. I couldn't agree with Sheila more. Let's leave her office in the old laboratory and head on over to the World Food Garden to meet one of the gardeners there. Hello, my name is Liz Mooney. I'm a gardener with the edibles team at RHS Wisley. We're now going to have a quick walk around the World Food Garden and have a look at some of the different plants we've got planted and the different combinations we use. So the bed we're standing by at the moment, which we've got a couple of different perennial crops. So we've got our asparagus. At the moment, some of the asparagus is looking quite small because we only planted it this year. So that'll be harvesting and developing and we'll start harvesting that in a few years time. We're also growing sea kale, which is a slightly more unusual perennial crop, but it's actually really tasty with the young shoots. And if you want to, you can put a sort of forcing pot or something over the top to exclude the light from the young shoots. So they grow up a bit quicker and are a bit more tender when you harvest them. At the moment, we're letting them flower because they look really nicer and, again, are attractive to pollinators in the garden. And we've got some beetroot growing, which are growing really well. Now, these beetroot are actually quite interesting because when we first planted them out, we interplanted them between some mustard that was already in the bed. So, again, that makes better use of the space because you're still able to get a couple more crops off the mustard 
before you remove the mustard and let the beetroot keep growing on. So you're getting more harvests from the same space. These beetroots are also multi-sown. So we started them off inside in modules and we're aiming for four to five plants per module and we're going to let them keep growing in that cluster rather than thinning them out individually because as the beetroots grow they push apart from each other and you end up getting a lot more crop from the same space and it also allows you to successionally harvest. So you go in, you twist out the biggest beetroot, let the others grow on a bit more, go and twist out the next biggest, let them grow a bit more. So you get a successional harvest and in the end you get many more beetroot from the same space. Here's a good tip for the home gardener in the veg garden. Consider planting sacrificial crops which will try and attract the pests away from the crops you're trying to grow. So we're now standing next to a bed here where we're doing something new which we haven't done in previous years. We've got a nasturtium called Tall Mixed which grows really big and rambling and we're going to tie it in and train it up an obelisk. Now nasturtiums as well as obviously you can eat the leaves, you can eat the flowers so they're really good in an edible garden but they are also really good for attracting in beneficial insects and they can also be quite a good sacrificial crop. So black fly love nasturtium. So if you have a particular problem with black fly in a crop as you might often get with beans for example, nasturtiums are quite a good thing to have growing nearby because you're going to hope that the black fly attack the nasturtiums and leave your beans alone. So nasturtiums are a really good crop to use in that way but you do have to be careful with them because they are so rampant. So we've tried in the past intertwining nasturtiums and squash next to some climbing beans again to try and get the black fly to go to the nasturtiums but we found that even though squash are a really vigorous plant the vigor of the nasturtiums was a bit too much and the competition was too much and we ended up removing the nasturtiums before they got to flowering point to allow the squashes to really go on but that's absolutely fine it's good to try things in a garden it's good to experiment and see what works and you just learn from it and that one didn't work so well but we've tried other combinations that worked really well so just experiment and have fun we grow a lot of different crops and produce in the world food garden and we send several crates a week down to our restaurant teams here at Wisley for them to use but we also put a lot of produce on our donation stand for visitors to come and help themselves to so if you're ever in Wisley please do come and look on our donation stand and see what you can take thank you Sheila Das and Liz Mooney when I think about the long-term health of my garden, I know that the more I can emulate natural processes, the healthier my land will be. I liked what Liz said about sacrificial crops. Nasturtiums is a lovely plant at any time. It's a little vigorous, so you have to keep an eye on it. And of course, if it gets too covered in black flying caterpillars, it could actually make the problem worse. Other people try growing lettuces to tempt the slugs away from more valuable plants. But before you know it, you've got far more slugs than you expected. So you have to be quite careful with your sacrificial crops. Sheila and Liz's comments about successional harvest was a good wake up call for me. Every three weeks during the summer, I sow little and often. So lettuces, radishes, spinach, salad onions, one or two meter row goes in every three weeks. They mature in succession right the way through to October. This means I've got food on the table all summer and I won't have those dispiriting gluts where you have to consign all your produce to the compost bin or you have to try and fob it off on people when they see you coming try to avoid you after a while. This is why it's so important to plan your allotment or your vegetable garden ahead of time so you don't do lots of work for no extra gain. On today's show, we're equipping you with a touch of foresight in the hope that it'll make your life easier and tastier a few months down the line. 
which is why I wanted to wax lyrical for a while about the marvellous genus that is the brassica, and how you can get the best out of Brussels sprouts and harvest enough for endless roast dinners. My Brussels sprout growing starts in February with sowing the seeds and raising young plants. But of course you can buy seedlings in mail order through April and March, or you can get them from garden centres now if you haven't raised any already. Before you get planting your lovely seedlings, think about the soil. Ideally it would have been manured or composted last year or this year, but if not, don't worry, you can always add fertiliser following the manufacturer's instructions. And Brussels sprouts are pretty vigorous plants, as indeed are all brassicas, and they'll find the fertiliser and they'll do well whatever. And naturally you should hoe off all the weeds, and if the ground is very dry, you should have your watering can handy. Now that the ground is prepared and the seedlings are ready, let's head to my allotment and do some planting. It's about half past eight on a Saturday morning on my allotment site just outside Woking. The birds are singing, the trains are rushing backwards and forwards and heading for Waterloo and the coast. And I'm busy planting Brussels sprouts. They're using a nice sharp trowel to make a decent sized hole, but not too big. The plants, which are a club root resistant kind called crispus, are in seven centimetre pots. So I tip it out of the pot. It's nice and wet. And I put it in the planting hole. It's about eight centimetres deep. So the plant is set in nice and deep. And the next stage will be to come along and water it. When I've puddled them in in a minute, which means filling the planting hole over and over until it's filled with mud, I'll be able to put the cabbage root fly collars on but first of all let's do another plant so another hole pull up any weeds as I go there's a few left over from the winter this ground grew a lovely crop of endives in the autumn endives and chicory and they were following a crop of onions so this uh, land won't come round to Brussels sprouts again for another three years that's the way my rotation works and uh, that way you avoid the build-up of disease in the soil. Thanks to the wonders of modern plant breeding, we've now got clubroot-resistant Brussels sprouts. That's made a huge difference. All the same, I still add lime, just in case there's strains of fungi present, the clubroot fungus that can overcome the resistance in the, the Brussels sprout plants. There's another one in. I've already applied the fertiliser so that when I water the fertiliser will be washed in and I'll also add some lime. I just put a handful of lovely fine ground limestone into the watering can, swirl it about and then go backwards and forwards topping up the planting holes. And I do this repeatedly until the planting hole is filled with mud and then we'll be ready for the next stage. Time to water them in. In goes the limey water, as I walk up and down the row with my watering can. Ideally, I don't want to water them again until July. Not just because it's a lot of work and a lot of water, but it's because if you water too much, you get a lot of worms. And if you get a lot of worms, then you get moles, and the moles can do a lot of damage to the roots. So, and a minimal amount of watering. And, uh, these are good, strong plants that should grow very quickly. I hope they'll be three foot tall by October and covered in Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts like a long growing season, so try and plant them in the first half of June for the best results. 
Later on in late June and July, there's time to plant cabbages, calabrese, cauliflowers and sprouting broccoli for the winter and of course kales. It's not just Brussels sprouts and if you don't happen to have Brussels sprout plants, there's other brassicas that you can grow for the winter as well. You might have heard me mention cabbage root fly collars. Cabbage root fly collars prevent the cabbage root fly from laying its eggs at the base of the plant. They're simply little cardboard discs or squares which fit snugly round the plant and amazingly cabbage root fly can't seem to get round them and they give total protection. And they were invented by scientists at the National Vegetable Research Station many years ago to avoid the use of organophosphorus insecticides that were very toxic and in wide use at that time. And they're a great example of non-chemical pest control. You might have heard me mention lime. Well, lime is ground calcium carbonate or ground limestone and it makes the soil very alkaline. And so by adding lime when I'm planting my brassicas, I'm making the soil around the roots extremely alkaline, full of calcium, and that has the most interesting effect. It prevents the club root fungus organism that swims in the soil moisture from actually infecting the brassica roots. So that too is a very effective non-chemical way of controlling disease. In this case, I bought some lime that was excellent quality, so I stirred it up in the water and then watered the lime on. But if the lime is not such good quality, you can just put a, a small handful in each planting hole. You heard me planting them, but I just love Brussels sprouts and I devote one third of my allotment to brassicas. So as well as the Brussels sprouts, I grow kales, sprouting broccoli, cabbages, savoy cabbages, red cabbage, white storing cabbage, swedes, uh, a lovely vegetable called kalette, so I like a Brussels sprout kale, and anything else I can think of, including calabries and of course the most challenging of all and one of my favourites, cauliflowers. I'm a bit of a brassica fiend, I suppose you could say. Come winter, these are wonderful vegetables to have with your dinners. They make good salads. I'm often amazed at how much I like them now, because when I was a child, uh, there was nothing, nothing more horrible than school dinner cabbage. So I've cured myself of that aversion, and now I enjoy them greatly. So if you're looking for a vegetable to enjoy this winter, and you'd like to indulge in the nutritious and delicious, I can highly recommend giving Brussels sprouts and all brassicas a good go. Now, here at the RHS, we're saying goodbye to our Director General, Sue Big, CBE, who has led and achieved so much. Editor of The Garden magazine, Tom Howard, caught up with her at the Chelsea Flower Show to hear about the highlights of her tenure. Sue Biggs, how are you feeling at Chelsea this year? Oh, it's just such a bittersweet moment for me because after 12 years at the RHS, a charity I absolutely adore and Chelsea is a show I really love so much, mainly because of the community of people here. And so it's wonderful to be here. It's a very great privilege to be here at Chelsea for, for the last time. In what ways have you seen Chelsea change in the last 12 years and how much of that was instigated by you and how much is just a sort of organic evolution of an event like Chelsea? Chelsea's always been an amazing show. I mean, this year is our 100th show, even though it's, you know, we celebrated its centenary after 100 years in 2013. It was obviously interrupted by world wars and things and COVID. So this is actually the 100th show we've ever had. And over that time, it's always been at the centre of world horticulture. It's such a world-class show. But I think the way that it's changed now is that we've tried really hard to make it more inclusive. And whether you're the queen or you're the most junior person who's just planted an iris in a garden at Chelsea, 
we're all interested in the same thing, the beauty and the joy of plants that make us feel better. And after the last two years, we all deserve to feel a hell of a lot better. And I mean, I'm relatively new. I joined the RHS less than a year and a half ago. And it is a fascinating organisation to join. Yeah. It's very big, it's very complex, there's a lot going on. When I started, that seems like a very, very long time ago <laughs> to me already. Oh, you've aged so much, Tom. <laughs> but I want to know what you can remember, because a lot has happened in 12 yeah, years. I was a young woman what? then. <laughs> I think the thing I remember most when I joined the RHS, I'd recently broken my ankle. So it was very weak. I wasn't still in a pot, but it was very weak. And it was Chelsea, and I had to curtsy to the Queen. Well, I tried curtsy on the wrong foot and nearly fell over and crushed the poor Queen. And I've never quite recovered from that moment of thinking I could personally have killed our patron, the Queen of our country. But she's so amazing and such a fantastic patron for us. She's wonderful. So going back right again, back to the beginning of your time at the RHS, what do you consider to be your first major achievement? I think the most important thing for me personally was getting all of us employees at the RHS all facing in the same direction because not everybody was working together then. And to have us all as one RHS with a real excitement and ambition about what we were going to deliver together Nothing after that would have been possible if we hadn't been able to really all face forward and say, this is really exciting, we're going to do this. Yeah, it was quite interesting the way that... So last year was obviously a huge year for the RHS with Bridgewater opening and Hilltop opening. Your time in the RHS did sort of build to that climax of those two things opening and the SIPs being done. Was that always the plan? Well, I'm not sure it was the plan to... to oh, right, I've done those two, now I'm off. That wasn't really the plan. But what was the plan and what... I must admit, I was surprised how long it took us to develop some of these. Having never really been involved in such big builds, I had never really quite appreciated the time it took to get the legals through, the planning through, the local engagement through. Because if we took Bridgewater as an example, the local community in Bridgewater are very, very special people. They have supported us, challenged us, made the garden better. And all of that takes time to build a relationship, because like most things in life, nothing really is to do with legal documents. It's all to do with human relationships. Do you have regrets from your time? Ooh, I have a regret. So in 2000 and I think 14, I might be wrong on the date, but I think it's 14, in conjunction with DEFRA, we formed the Ornamental Horticulture Roundtable Group, which is the, bringing together the whole industry. Horticulture is not a together industry, it's very diverse, and that's been both its strength and its weakness. So we formed this group that I've chaired since inception to try and persuade government of why horticulture matters, the importance of this industry. And we presented lots of evidence, and when we did in 2019, I think it was, that we were at 24 billion as an industry, now we're approaching 30 billion, and we believe we've got the potential to get to 42 billion with a bit of government support but the government still seems really quite obsessed with farming and fishing. And with their green agenda, with the environmental agenda that they've got, I do not understand why horticulture isn't taken more seriously. And I'm cross with myself that I haven't got further with that of actually delivering a result that means that we can, you know, we have a green skills crisis in this country. We don't have enough people to work in horticulture. We don't have enough scientists to do all the climate change and the biodiversity research that we're doing now up at Wisley Hilltop. You know, all of that is so important. And I, I just don't understand why the government isn't 
providing the support that other governments are, you know, it's recognised as a profession that people want to join. And I think if we could get over that view in this country that gardening is something people do if they failed at school. I mean, if I look around the people in this show here at Chelsea, so I'm looking out down Main Avenue and seeing some of the world's best designers in the pavilion, there's some of the world's best growers, the scientists are walking around giving advice. Why is that a career not to be proud of? I, I just don't understand it. It is such a fabulous industry. It's such a great one to be associated with. And if you care about the environment, then you should care about horticulture too, which I know if you're listening to this, you already do. So that's a bit of a pointless call, but I hope you can spread the world too. I do think I have not achieved what I hope to in that area. I think this is a stupid question, but are you going to miss it? You're right, Tom. That's a very stupid question. Yeah, I'm going to miss it enormously. 12 years in the RHS, there have been so many amazing people. It's the people I will miss. You know, I can see the plants still not in the RHS, but the people in horticulture, in the RHS, and our members are just amazing people, and that's what I'll miss. Thank you very much, Sue Biggs. Enjoy the rest of your Chelsea Flower Show. Thanks, Tom. Been a pleasure. Four years, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I shall miss Sue. Whenever we met in the corridors of Wisley, she had a merry quip for me, and more importantly, she's presided over the most amazing transformation of the RHS, with our new welcome building at Wisley, our hilltop building at Wisley, Bridgewater Gardens in the north, and many other exciting projects which she has led in her tenure. But she's leaving the RHS in good hands with the new RHS Director General, Claire Matterson, CBE, who said recently about gardens, However big or small, urban or rural, we can all have a direct experience and connection with nature, which is something I'm sure we can all get behind. Well, that's about it for today's episode. I hope we've provided some inspiration on how you can plan and plant ahead for a future version of you to enjoy. In my own garden, it's that glorious happy time just round the corner when everything is planted and weeded and I can lean back and enjoy the fruits of long labours. Naturally, there's a fair bit of deadheading, watering and so on that needs to be done from time to time, but the pressure comes off. In the meantime, the June weed surge is upon us, so it's round the garden with hoe, trowel and border spade, gloved hands and a bucket. But uh, this year it's been quite dry, so there's not as many weeds as there can be in a wet season. Asparagus is almost over. Best not to weaken the beds, ditto rhubarb, so I won't harvest any more of those. Instead, I'll be enjoying broad beans, salads and strawberries, and the first peas are almost ready. The dry weather has led me to have to do a bit more watering, but at least it's kept the slugs and moulds down, so the produce is all in very good condition and utterly delicious. I'm looking forward to this summer very, very much. Until next time, from me, Guy Barter, happy planting. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone 
and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the Rhydon sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.